Again, that's page 855, and Luke chapter 1 is what we're looking at. So if you've got a Bible, would you leave it there? Let's pray, and then we'll consider this passage together. Father, we now ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit without limit, as you promised you would to all who ask, and that the Holy Spirit would do what the Holy Spirit was promised to do, which is to point us to Jesus. We pray that we would see his greatness, his excellency, his supremacy, that there are not enough superlatives in the human language for who he is, as you've revealed him in your word. Help us then to sense that today, to see it today, to hear it today, and to walk out of here convinced that this is so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me tell you about the worst birthday gift I had ever gotten in my entire life. Maybe the worst gift ever given to anyone in anyone's entire life. I was in grade school. I don't remember exactly what year it was, probably because I tried to block it out of my memory. And you know how when you're in grade school, you count down the days to your birthday. So like 10 months away, you're still counting down. Six months away, it's going to be your birthday. Two months away, it's going to be your birthday. Seven days away, it's going to be your birthday. Well, my day had arrived. It was my birthday. I went to school. I came home. And when I got home, my parents told me, we have something. And then they told me to come with them, and they walked me to my sister's bedroom. Now, I should have known something that, why am I going to my sister's bedroom for my birthday? And there, when I turned the corner, I entered her bedroom, was a brand new queen-size bed with a card on it that said, happy birthday. And I'm staring there trying to figure out exactly what's happening. I'm sort of blinking weirdly and a mouth open. And they help me out and they say, happy birthday, son. We bought your sister a new bed. No exaggeration. They had bought my sister a new bedroom set for my birthday. Now, granted, a a bed isn't exactly the most exciting gift, but I have Indian parents, so I wasn't expecting a PlayStation. It was going to be an encyclopedia or a bed, but it was a bed for Asha on my birthday, right? Now, I I don't think that you fully understand. My parents (laughs) bought a bedroom set for my sister on my birthday birthday. Who does that? Right? To this day, I I think of that. My birthday became an occasion to celebrate Asha. I was like Jan Brady going, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. It was like Asha, Asha, Asha. Poor, beautiful, neglected Jan. She's my favorite character on the Brady Bunch. You think of that. My birthday was upstaged by my younger sibling, stolen my thunder, and my birthday became a spotlight on someone else. Okay. If there's anyone in the world that would be able to relate with me, that would know exactly what that's like, it's the man in the passage that we're looking at today. Because in our passage, Luke introduces us to John the Baptist. And John, more than anyone else in the world, could relate because John's entire life was overshadowed by his younger relative. Literally, John's entire life from before he was born was about someone else. The spotlight was on someone else. Remember, we're in this series where we're preparing ourselves for the advent of Christ, for the coming of Jesus Christ, and we're looking at Jesus particularly through the lens of some of the members of the Holy Family. So a few weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' grandparents, and then we looked at Jesus' dad, and last week we looked at Jesus' mom, and today we're considering Jesus' older sibling, his older cousin, John the Baptist. 
We learn about John from the opening chapters of Luke. And that's because Luke begins his gospel account with not one, but two birth narratives. In fact, would you do me a favor and just look down at Luke 1 and Luke 2. You'll see it in the passage in front of you, right? Page 855. Just skimming over Luke 1 and 2, you'll see that Luke intentionally presents sort of this parallel, this sort of purposeful back and forth between John and Jesus. Just look at it. See the headings with me. In verses 5 through 25, you're told of the birth of John is being foretold. Okay, what comes immediately after that? In succession, paralleling that, in verse 26 to 38, now you've got the birth of Jesus being foretold. Then you look over to 57. In 1 verse 57 all the way to 80, you're going to see the birth of John, the circumcision of John on the eighth day, the naming ceremony of the child, and that entire section concludes with the prophetic words spoken by an elderly Zechariah. Okay, what comes immediately after that? Well, chapter 2 begins, and now you get the birth of Jesus. In verse 21, you're going to get his circumcision on the eighth day, his naming ceremony, and then that section is going to conclude with a prophetic word that's spoken over him by an elderly Simeon. Do you see it? Luke isn't doing this by accident. He's setting up a purposeful parallel. You see, Luke starts his gospel account with not one, but two visits from the angel Gabriel to two unsuspecting and shocked set of parents and announces to them two miraculous births and gives to them two names of two sons who would be miraculously born. And then these sons are circumcised and named and prophesied over, even to the point, if you look at 1 verse 80 and then look at 2 verse 40, both these sections are going to conclude with, and these children, talking of John first and then Jesus, they grew up in stature and strength, and then they were set about to do what God wanted them to do. Do you see the parallel? Do you see the symmetry? And yet here's the genius of it. For all the similarities, what Luke is actually doing here, what he actually wants us to see, what he's intentionally highlighting is not how similar they are, but is highlighting the differences between them. You see, what he wants to do is highlight not what's same, but what's different, because what he wants you to see through this whole parallel is one child is above the other. That this is really about the supremacy of one over the other. In fact, if I could summarize it, I'd say it this way. Luke is trying to get you to see John is great, but Jesus is better. John is great, but Jesus is greater. In fact, if it was Luke's way, he'd say it this way. Even on John's birthday, the spotlight was on his younger sibling. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. This whole section is about Jesus. Let me show you. Look at verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So the section starts where you meet this elderly couple, Zechariah the priest, his wife Elizabeth. We're told they don't have children. Elizabeth is barren. 
And now Luke, you should note, goes out of his way to tell us that this elderly but barren couple were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. Catch that. Luke goes out of his way to remind us, to tell us, to inform us that the inability of this couple to have children, this good thing that they want in their hearts, want with their lives, but is unmet, that God hasn't chosen to give them, is not because of their sin. It's not because they did something wrong. It's not because God was mad at them. It's not because God was punishing them. Luke goes out of his way to tell us, to remind us, this unmet desire of their heart, this good thing, this blessing that they had prayed for but haven't yet received, is not because God was angry at them. He notes they were both blameless and they kept God's statutes and commandments. They were both righteous before God. I suspect that that note Luke wants to point out is good for some of us to hear. That sometimes the unmet longings of our heart, the desire for blank, and you could fill in the blank. For them, it was a child. And you'd almost go, Lord, why wouldn't you answer a prayer for something as good as a child? And you might have a similar prayer. But the passage here reminds us that God's purposes and plans in withholding a child from them was not because there was something wrong with them, not punishment for them. Nevertheless, you've got this old couple with no kids. They are well past childbearing years. In fact, that's what seven highlights for us. Did you catch in seven? They were both advanced in years. That's the way of saying this was beyond childbearing time. It was now physically, medically, scientifically impossible for them to conceive. Their bodies don't work. Those days are done. And so at this moment that is physically, scientifically, medically impossible for them to have children, God comes through the angel and says, you're going to have a child. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be called, for he will be great before the Lord. So put that together for a second. You've got this old, barren couple. It is physically, scientifically, medically impossible for them to have kids. They are well beyond childbearing years. They're advanced in age. The kids and I, this week, as we were doing this story in family worship, I, I said to them, it's almost like if Mrs. Laura had a baby, right? Mrs. Laura, if you know, Lord willing, on January 1st at our church, will turn 92. And the kids laughed and laughed and laughed. Could you imagine... And that's what's being set up here. This elderly, barren couple, advanced in years, well beyond the childbearing years, is now told by an angel that they're going to have a son. Now, I'd ask you, does any of that sound familiar to you? Because if you're familiar with the Bible, if you've read parts of the Bible before, perhaps suddenly a light bulb goes off. And Luke would know that his first readers would have bells ringing as soon as they're hearing this. Because immediately they would be thinking of another elderly couple, well advanced in years, scientifically, medically, physically impossible to have children, and an angel of the Lord comes and says, you are going to bear a son. I mean, it was a laughable thought. And that's literally what happened. There's an old story of a man named Abraham and Sarah, both well advanced in years, both beyond childbearing years. An angel comes and tells them they're going to have a son. At this point, Abraham's 100, Sarah's pushing 90. She laughs at that. In fact, 
And a year later, when a son came, she named her son Isaac, if you know the story, because it means laughter, because of the miracle God had done. Does this sound familiar? And if so, here's the question. How special is this boy John that God is reaching back to something he did with Israel's most legendary couple and doing it again? How seismic, significant, monumental is the birth of this boy that God is reaching back to Genesis and pulling off a miracle like this? That a barren, elderly couple should give birth again tells us this boy is no ordinary boy. This is not your average son. The birth of John is so huge, so monumental in the plans and purposes of God that it has you thinking of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. And so the question that that pushes to the top is, what on earth, what on earth could top an elderly, infertile couple having a scientifically, medically, physically impossible baby so amazing that it's got you thinking of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac? Can anything top a barren birth? And Luke gives the answer, yes, a virgin birth. You see what he's doing? He purposely follows the most unbelievable birth with an even more unbelievable birth. He's purposely putting one right up against the other to say, if there is one thing that can top a barren birth, it's a virgin birth. And that's why right after the first announcement, he gives you the second one. Because if you thought it was crazy, to read as you do in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. If you think it's crazy for an old couple whose bodies don't work to come together and conceive a child, if that's crazy, you know what's crazier? In 34, when Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? You know what the only thing that could top an old barren couple conceiving? is a virgin woman who's never come together with any man conceiving. The only thing that could be greater is this, which is to tell us John's conception is amazing, but Jesus' is even greater. Because Jesus, 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 this whole thing is about Jesus. Or consider this. Look at what is said about John in verse 15. The angel says to Zechariah, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Seven Mile Road, did you catch that? It's said of John, the baby that's coming to Zechariah and Elizabeth, this special child, Abraham and Isaac-like, this child, it's said of him, he will be set apart. How set apart? He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now remember, Luke who's writing this is the same Dr. Luke that we've been studying in the book of Acts before we pause for this series. And we've heard how Dr. Luke has spoken of the filling of the Holy Spirit. We heard Acts chapter 2 and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and God's people being filled with the Holy Spirit. That same Dr. Luke is using the language of filled with the Spirit to describe what was going to happen to John while he was in his mother's womb. I tell you, I don't even have a theology good enough to explain how that happens to you. How do you explain and filling of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a woman to a child? I can tell you this much. 
Every Christian parent that I know is praying desperately for their sons and daughters to come up, to grow up, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to come to a knowledge of Jesus. And so every parent that I know that's a Christian is reading their kids from the Bible, reading the Jesus storybook to the Bible to them, praying with them, singing songs with them, family devotion, with the hope that through Sunday school or youth group, in some way, in some means, God might bring them to Jesus and fill them with the Holy Spirit. I can assure you that no parent here is banking on God will take care of it while they're in the womb. Zechariah didn't read the Jesus Storybook Bible to John. Zechariah didn't bring him to Sunday school or youth group. They didn't do family worship, no devotions. While this boy was in his mother's womb, so set apart, so special, so significant was he that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even while he was in his mother's womb. So that raises the question, what on earth could top an in utero filling of the Holy Spirit. I mean, do you see how significant and special this child is? What on earth could top that? And Luke goes, I'll top it, because in the very next passage, in the very next section, he's going to give you a picture of how John actually gets filled with the Holy Spirit while he's in his mother's womb. Look at verse 39. In those days, that's right after Mary gets her vision, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It's this beautiful scene. It's the first time the parallel actually intersects. Because now you've got this story going about John and this narrative emerging about Jesus. And now the two pregnant moms meet. It's actually the first encounter of these two miracle sons, both within the wombs of Mary and Elizabeth. They both conceived miraculously. They're both going to have miracle sons. But do you see what's clear in the passage? That one son is clearly greater than the other. Do you see that? They both conceive miraculously. And yet filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth cries out, Blessed are you! And the fruit of your womb. And you want to go, Elizabeth, wait, you're pregnant too. You, you have a miracle baby growing inside your womb. And yet, it's not reciprocal. She doesn't cry out and then Mary says, no, no, blessed are you. It doesn't come back. The spotlight is clearly on the son that's growing in her womb. In Mary's womb. Because Mary's womb is more important than mine. Because the son growing in Mary's womb is greater than the son growing in mine. She says, blessed are you. And the fruit of your womb. And then she goes on in 43. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, at the sound of your greeting, the child within my womb leaped for joy. Do you hear that? John the Baptist does a kick in the womb, but not an ordinary kick. A Holy Spirit-filled somersault in Elizabeth's womb. Let me ask you, is it impressive 
for a child to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb, yes. But do you know what's even more impressive? It's that it was happening because this child was now in the in utero presence of Jesus. Do you hear that? That's what's even more impressive. It's impressive to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know what's even more impressive? To be the in utero cause for that happening. In fact, do you see this scene? This scene is that Jesus has just been conceived, right? Six months after Elizabeth got the visit, Mary gets the visit, and now Mary runs with haste to Elizabeth. And so she has just conceived the child Jesus. And so just recently conceived Jesus. If Mary went to a doctor that week, the doctor would have said, your baby is the size of a a peanut or a grape or a strawberry. Well, strawberry-sized Jesus is in Mary's womb, and it's being in the presence of in utero Jesus that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, And John does a somersault in the womb, which makes you go, how magnificent is this child being born in Mary's womb? How special is this son? Because if John is special, how much more is Mary's womb and the son being born there? Do you see what Luke is doing? From his mother's womb, John is special, filled with the Holy Spirit. But from his mother's womb, Jesus is is even greater because Jesus, 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 this whole thing is about Jesus. Or consider with me when John was actually born. You'll see that in verse 57. In 57 and following, we get the account of Elizabeth actually giving birth to the son that the angel promised she would give birth to. Now, for the sake of time, we won't even mention the fact that when he's born, we're told that there's fanfare from all the, the neighbors and the relatives We won't even hold that in parallel and say, okay, some relatives and neighbors coming over when you're born is great. Compare that to chapter 2 when Jesus is born, literally a choir from heaven comes and sings of his birth. We won't even compare Aunt Susie coming over to say, you're so cute, compared to a concert in the heaven by the choir of angels. We won't even compare what actually happens when they're born. But then would you look at verse 67. Zechariah... Remember last week, nine months in timeout, Zechariah? Nine months sitting there quietly with nothing but time to think. You imagine what nine months of silence and solitude did for Zechariah. What nine months of pouring over, what did the angel say to me? And pouring over the scriptures and pouring over in prayer. Why didn't I believe, Lord? Help me believe. Nine months of not saying a word. And now... When his son is born, he says this boy should be named John. His tongue is loosed, and for the first time in nine months, he begins to speak. And filled with the Holy Spirit, he begins to prophesy. You can almost picture the scene. Maybe someone hands Zechariah his firstborn son. Could you picture it? This boy, maybe frail, wrinkled hands holding his son. Maybe an 80-something-year-old man holding his firstborn that he had prayed for for decades. Remember, the angel came and said, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. How many years of praying did he pray? Well, now he's got this baby boy, this miraculous son, this Abraham and Sarah, Isaac-like baby in his hands. And filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah begins to prophesy. And you hear it in 68. Holding his son, perhaps, he says, Listen to these words. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house 
of his servant David, and then you go time out. Wait a minute. Who is he talking about? He's holding perhaps his firstborn son that he had prayed for, the miracle baby, and he starts prophesying, except the question is, who is the horn of salvation from the house of David? Because John's not from the house of David. That's not his lineage. And that's when you realize Zechariah is speaking about Jesus. In fact, if you look at that whole section, with the exception of two verses, in 76 and 77, that whole section is about what God would do through Jesus. Do you get what just happened? That's like you were just born and handed to your dad, and your dad looks at you tenderly in the face and starts speaking of the excellency of another kid. I, I don't know how to tell you what that's like. That's like your parents buying your sister a bed for your birthday. Do you get that? He's holding this boy, his son, and declaring the excellencies of his younger sibling who is yet to be born. It's his birthday, literally. And yet the spotlight is on someone else because even John's birth was an occasion to magnify Jesus. Even John's birthday was an occasion to celebrate Jesus because, you see, John's entire life was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And then, when you get to finally what Zechariah actually says about his son, when he finally stops talking about Jesus for one second long enough to actually address his boy, you learn why this is so. You get why this is all set up this way. Because in 76... After speaking of the supremacy and the excellencies of Jesus, he finally looks at his own son and says, and you, child, and you, child. And now he looks at his boy, and he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And you, my precious, promised, beloved, miracle son, you, you will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And now you get to see why this is so. See, John's entire purpose in life was to be a forerunner, to be a preparer, to be a prophet. And therein you see the difference. See, John was a prophet of the Most High, and that's not subpar, a prophet of the Most High. He's in the company of Moses and Samuel and Isaiah, Jeremiah, the greatest of all of them. You will be a prophet of the Most High, but now you see the difference because when the angel came to Mary, did you remember what she, what she was told in verse 32? He will be great. Same thing was said about John. He will be great, but he will be called the Son of the Most High. John is a prophet of the Most High. That's amazing. Jesus is the Son of the Most High. That's even better. That's the point. You see, to be the king's herald is unbelievable. But to be the king is greater still. The king's ambassador gets to go and declare and prepare the way for the king. That's an incredible honor. But it's the king who sits on the throne. And that's who Jesus is. John is the prophet of the Most High. 
but Jesus, the Son of the Most High. And John's entire existence was to go before Jesus and to prepare his way even from the hour of his birth. Even from the hour of his birth, John the Baptist was the opening act, and Jesus was the main attraction. Even from his birth, John was the appetizer, and Jesus was the main course. Even from his birth, John was the pointer, and Jesus was the point. And Luke uses the birth narrative of John to show us the supremacy and the greatness and the betterness of Jesus than John. And you know what's crazy above all crazies? It's that nobody was happier about this than John. There wasn't an ounce of sibling rivalry in John's soul. There was no grudgingness over the spotlight on Jesus. In fact, John's soul sang louder than anyone's. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. This is all about Jesus. I mean, literally, from the moment he was conceived... He had been pointing people to Jesus. And what began for John the Baptist in his womb continued throughout his whole life. So that 30 years later, when John became an adult man, and now God called John to start his ministry, he goes out into the wilderness and he starts preaching. And people by the droves, by the thousands and the tens of thousands, from everywhere and anywhere start coming to John. In fact, Luke tells us about it. You just have to skip one chapter and go from 2 to 3. And in 3 verse 15, it says this. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Did you catch that? 30 years later, John grows up, and now he's an adult, and everybody is looking to John, and they're wondering about John, and they go, is this the guy? And John says the same thing at 30 that he did in the womb to his six-month younger cousin. There's someone coming after me, and he is actually greater than me. I'm just here to prepare the way. When they all pointed to John, John pointed them to Jesus. And John said, I'm sprinkling some water on you or dunking you in water. But there is coming someone after me who will flood you with the Holy Spirit. Or, or John, Jesus' disciple, captures this as well. Because John says this in his gospel account, that the next day, when John was baptizing and he looked and he saw Jesus, it says this, John 1, 29. The next day he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, that's a word for look, everybody look. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Do you see that? He points to his six months younger cousin and he says, I told you after me would come, but he has always been before me and he's always ranked above me. Here he is, look. And then when the six month younger sibling does arrive on scene and Jesus starts preaching and suddenly John's crowds start to shrink and Jesus' crowds start to swell. John's disciples come to him and they go, Rabbi, aren't you concerned? In fact, they say this, John 3, verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, 
He who was with you, that's Jesus, across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. That wasn't something new for John. He had been doing it from the womb, pointing people to Jesus. And when they come to him, they say, John, don't you care? Everyone's going to Jesus. He says, have you not been listening to anything I've been saying? Haven't I been telling you the whole time I'm not the Christ? In fact, he says, you know who I am? I'm the best man at the wedding. Nobody wakes up on a wedding day, gets ready, and goes, I wonder what the best man's going to look like today. Nobody goes, I wonder what the best man's toast will be, because nobody cares about the best man. Nobody's thinking about the best man, because all you care about is the bride and the groom. And John says, the people belong to him. I'm the guy standing off center to the right, and my joy is in seeing much made of him. And now my joy is complete. He must increase, and I must decrease. John testifies to Jesus, and John had been doing that from the womb. He literally kicked, testifying, we're in the presence of Jesus. And what he did in utero, he does 33 years later as well, or 30 years later as well. Here's what I want you to hear, and then I'll be done. Jesus once spoke of John the Baptist. In Matthew 11, Jesus says this unbelievable thing about his cousin. He says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. You know what that means? Jesus looked at John and said, There's no one born of women greater than John, which means... Jesus was greater than the greatest. Jesus was greater than the greatest. And John's entire purpose was to point people to Jesus. You know what's amazing about Jesus is that he was greater than John in every way. And you and I would go, how humble John is. When we're thinking sane, especially as those who are followers of Jesus, we want our lives to be like John, constantly pointing people to Jesus. And we imagine how humble John was. But I want, to hear, I want you to hear, even in humility, Jesus surpassed John. Even in humility, Jesus was greater than John. Because let me tell you of the one other time they encounter in the scriptures. They met in utero, womb to womb, son to son. But the next time we see, at least in the Bible, them meeting, is when Jesus comes for baptism. It's in Matthew. He records it, and he says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Would you just picture the scene with me? All the people, the tens of thousands coming to John, confessing their sins, being baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Now I want you to hear this. Standing in that line is like standing in line at a soup kitchen 
or at the welfare office or at the unemployment office. Meaning just standing in line implicates something about you. The details about you might be different than the details around you, but if anyone sees you on that line, they know something about you and your need. So it was to stand in the baptism line meant that your sins might differ from the person next to you, but you were all in the same boat, having sinned and needing cleansing and the forgiveness of your sins. And Jesus Christ was standing in that line. And you go, what was Jesus doing in that line? And there was no halo over his head to distinguish him from anyone else. He looked like every other sinner on the line. And when Jesus' turn finally came up, John said, what are you doing on this line? And John would have prevented him if he could. And John said to him, if anything, I should be baptized by you, but you come to me. And Jesus says to him this. Essentially, what Jesus communicates is, John Baptism is just the first step of what I've come to do. You see, standing in line with sinners isn't what Jesus had just come to do. Nor going under the waters like a sinner is what Jesus had come to do. Jesus would so identify with sinners that this wouldn't stop until he died as a sinner in our place and for our sins. He who knew no sin becomes sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The baptism was just the first step of identifying with sinners. It wouldn't stop until he became sin for us on the cross. You see, though Jesus was greater than John, Jesus had come not just to be baptized by John, but to die for John, to die for John's sins. And I'll simply say this to you. Romans has this verse that says, for scarcely one would die for someone else, maybe for a good person. You'd think, maybe for John the Baptist. But then the Romans verse says, But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You could almost imagine, yeah, it makes sense that Jesus would die for John. But you know what's greater? Jesus died for us. For people like us. And that's the supremacy of Jesus. That's the greatness of Jesus. That no one was higher, but no one came lower. No one was greater, and no one made himself more or less than Jesus. And so that's why Paul can say in Philippians 2, as he does, though he had equality with God, he counted that nothing, not something to be grasped, and emptied himself, taking on the form of a man, humbling himself to being a servant, even to the point of death. But then what happens? So that at now... God has exalted him to the highest place so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess in the earth and below the earth and in heaven that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I pray today, and I have prayed today, that I and you would be shown by the Holy Spirit the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the greatness of Jesus Christ, he is greater than the greatest born among women. And so I'd ask you today, where in your soul do you need to remind yourself Jesus is greater? You, in your soul, need to say blank is great, but Jesus is greater. And what's the blank for you? A spouse is great, but Jesus is greater. Children are great, but Jesus is greater. 
A, a career is great, but Jesus is greater. Money is great, but Jesus is greater. Food or sex or success or reputation or whatever your blank is, is great. But Jesus is greater because he is greater than the greatest of all. And that's what Luke wants us to see. Let's pray together. We ask and pray, Lord God, that by your spirit, we would see the greatness of Jesus Christ, his excellency, his glory, his majesty, his worth. Even if our hearts don't fully feel it, we pray that we would know by faith that your word is telling us that there are not enough adjectives to attach to him, not enough superlatives to describe him of his greatness, of his excellency, of his worth of how great Jesus truly is. We pray by the help of the Holy Spirit that our blind eyes would see and deaf ears would hear and numb hearts would feel the greatness of who it is that we're before, the greatness of the one whose name we sing, the greatness of the one who gave his life for us. How, how big was that gap from heaven to us that Jesus would descend for people like us? So we pray. We pray, we pray that you would help us to see and live in light of the greatness of Jesus Christ. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.